Hello and a very warm welcome as you join us on Search for Truth. Thanks for tuning in. Today we begin a new series of five weeks talks about the love of God. Over the coming month we'll be looking with Brian at different aspects of the love of God. But generally there will be main principles only because our study can only scratch the surface of such a vast subject. Today Brian touches on the love of God within the Godhead and by the term Godhead, we mean the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, now let's go to Brian to tell us more. Thanks, John. Yes, it's been pointed out that there are five ways in which the Bible talks about God's love. In this study, we hope to explore them all in turn. Perhaps it's worth beginning by saying what we're not talking about. We won't be saying that God's love has nothing at all in common with ours. If the Bible encourages us, to love one another even as God loves us, and it does that in 1 John 4 verse 11, then doesn't that require there to be some overlap at least between the nature of our love, human love, and the nature of divine love, God's love? There is, of course, a certain kind of divine love which is a very different love from human love. And this has usually been referred to as agape love, after one of the Greek Bible words for love. But that's an oversimplification, one which forgets the golden rule, which tells us that we must understand the meaning of any Bible word by its context. In Matthew's Gospel, sinners are said to love other sinners, and it's this agape word that's used. And on at least one occasion in the Bible, when the same word is used for love, the context includes the rape of the young woman concerned, hardly a selfless act, of course. So there's nothing about this word itself that guarantees it's automatically always going to be referring to a very different and divine kind of loving. Rather, its introduction into the Greek Bible was the result of understandable factors which have to do with the changing use of words in general circulation, just as still happens today. Yet, at a later time in history, the introduction of this particular word was seemingly reinterpreted by people whose view was that God's love was almost exclusively to do with the will and not about the emotions. But over against that, there are Bible passages that unmistakably present God's love to us in terms that loving human parents can easily relate to whenever they're called upon to discipline their children. In other words, God is most certainly not without feelings, although they're not flawed as ours so often are. No, the old clichés won't do. The Bible uses different original language words for love quite interchangeably when talking about how God loves us, and uses them interchangeably even of God the Father's love for his Son. So let's follow a rather different approach in our study of God, as a God of love, it's an approach that acknowledges five different contexts in which it's meaningful to talk about God's love. The first, which we'll think about, is the love of God within the Godhead itself. The Bible's statement that God is love, in 1 John 4 and verse 8, first of all conveys to us that God exists within a relationship in which love is expressed between distinct persons, those being the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who together comprise the Godhead. John's Gospel has things to tell us about the love of the Father for the Son, 
as well as telling us something about the love of the Son for the Father. What's more, we learn that the way in which the Father expresses his love for the Son is different from the way in which the Son expresses his love for the Father. We tend to see the cross and our salvation purely in terms of God's love for us. But John's Gospel presents the cross to us in the more sublime context of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's reciprocal love for the Father. It humbles us to the point of worship when we come to see how this mutual love within the Godhead lies at the very heart of everything in Christianity. And there's something more, something very practical, as we're shown how these two different ways of expressing love, that's the Father's for the Son and the Son's for the Father, are applied respectively to how the Lord shows his love for us and how we are to show our love for him. But more of that later. What we're saying is that the love within the Trinity, specifically the love between the Father and the Son, while not presented as a model for all relationships, does have a direct relevance for love as expressed between Christ and his followers. Now twice John in his Gospel tells us about the Father's love for the Son. Let's briefly examine the second mention which we find in John's Gospel, chapter 5. I'm reading from verse 16. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The background to all this is that on the Sabbath day in question, Jesus had healed a man and then told him to pick up his bed and walk. What had further provoked the hostility of these Jews was the fact that Jesus had then defended his working on the Sabbath by saying, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, Jesus was acknowledging God the Father's providential working on the Sabbath, but was also associating his own Sabbath day working along with it, even as he called God his Father. There's probably a cultural understanding of father-son relationships assumed in this section, which we need to surface at this point. Sons in those days and in that kind of society were trained to follow in their father's business and to learn their trade from their father. The cultural expectation was that the activity of any son would be the same activity as that of his father. This type of thinking lay behind a person being called a son of encouragement, for example. In other words, encouragement, being so typical of his activity, leads us to suggest that his father must have been someone extremely encouraging. In fact, could well be encouragement personified. And so from him, the son too learned to be encouraging. In a similar way, a peacemaker might be called a son of God, as he is in Matthew chapter 5, simply because it was well known that God was a God of peace 
and was in the business of making peace. However, it's one thing to claim such a relationship with regard to a transferable attribute, like being peaceable, but to base a claim to relationship with God not on any shared attribute, but on divine providential working, was in a different league, and these Jews recognised that. Jesus, however, didn't leave it there, but went on to expand on this claim by explaining something quite wonderful. Let's again try to understand it based on what happened in their culture. For example, any father who had a fishing business would show his son how to handle the fishing boat, where to look for the fish, how to interpret the weather, the way to mend the fishing nets, and so on. Now remember Jesus' words? He said, The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. This, first of all, clarifies that Jesus, the son, is in subjection to his father. He doesn't do his own thing, but Jesus is subordinate. But in case that should raise the wrong thought in any of our minds that Jesus, the Son, is inferior to the Father, Jesus adds that he does whatever the Father does. Did you register the full significance of that? The extent of his working is as great as the extent of the Father's working. They are equal. And then most wonderfully, and for the second time in this Gospel, the Gospel by John, Jesus tells us that the Father loves the Son, and that's why the Father shows the Son all that he himself does. Remember we said in village life at that time, a loving Father would show his Son how to do things just as he did them. That's why this explanation meant more then than it does now perhaps in many areas of the world. The Son's love for the Father, however, is expressed in a different way, as the Lord's words at the end of John chapter 14 reveal. In John 14 verse 31 we read, Jesus saying, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Father expresses his love for the Son by showing him all that he himself is doing, and the Son expresses his love for the Father by obeying all his Father's commands. This is significant, because nowhere is the Son said to commission the Father, nor do we ever read of the Father obeying the Son. And John's Gospel goes even further and teaches us that this two-way street, the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, is a model which has special relevance for the Lord's relationship with us and our relationship with him. He says in John 15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. As the father lovingly shows the son what he himself is doing, even so the Lord lovingly makes things known to us. And as the son obeys the father, even so we express our love for the Lord by obeying our Lord's commands. As Jesus said in John 14:15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I say, what greater motivation could there be for our obedience to the things we've learnt than the incentive of modelling the relationship of God the Father and God the Son?
If we go on to the last verse of that hymn, it says, The love of Father, love of Son, love of I abiding one, glory, honour, worship be to the undivided three. And we'll say Amen to that. Now, as normal, there's a transcript booklet of all the talks in this series. It's free to receive, and if you'd like one or more than one for group Bible study or to pass on to friends, make sure to let us have your postal address and ask for the title God's Five Loves. Now, you can also download our booklets via the internet, or you can order by email or by post. And first, I'll give you the postal address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And now here's our email address, sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, if you wish, you can download audio MP3 versions of some past programmes on your computer. Go to www.searchfortruth.org.uk. This is our church website, where you can also access additional helpful material. Now, some titles of Search for Truth booklets are also available at amazon.co.uk forward slash Kindle ebooks. Type Search for Truth series into the search box, and you'll find more back copy titles are constantly being made available. So, many thanks for the privilege of your company today. It's been great to have you with us. Do join us next week if you can when we'll be looking at God's love for all his creation. Until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you all.